Good morning, Lakeview. Thank you, Adam. Praise team, band, choir, orchestra for leading us in worship. If you would turn your Bible to Exodus 32, we will go to the, our great God that we just sang about and ask him to bless this most critical hour, the time in which we hear the word preached. Our great God, we, we joined the psalmist and declare great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Father, in your son Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient work for us and by your spirit, we have praised you through song. And now we desire to praise you in the faithful stewardship of this preaching time. Father, we ask that you would revive our souls by your word this morning. Make wise the simple by your word this morning. That you would rejoice our hearts by your word this morning. And enlighten our spiritual eyes to your glory in the face of your son by your word this morning. And we ask this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. 30 years ago today, August the 29th, 1991, I attended a Christian concert in uh, Tuscaloosa put on by the group Truth. I went there out of compulsion. I had been telling a friend that I would go, and I didn't want to go, but I went. And in the first song of that concert, I heard these lyrics. In the Holy of Holies, behind the heavenly veil, set the Ark of the Covenant, where the Most High dwells. And only the high priest could enter therein to offer up a sacrifice for atonement for sin. But the veil was rent in an instant, revealing that holy place, on a hill nearby, on a rugged cross, justice met grace. Now I can go into the Holy of Holies. Now I can make my petitions known. And as that song was being sung, the Spirit of God enlightened me to the truths of that song. And for the first time, I had been raised in the church, but for the first time in my life, I saw, I beheld the beauty of the mediator who had died for my sin of idolatry and I was gloriously converted. My brother was there with me that evening. In fact, he's here today. My central idol had been the idol of self. Self-love, self-absorption, selfishness. And the way I served this central idol was by the central idols of human approval. I lived for human approval. I lived for respect from others. I lived for validation from others. I lived for sports success. But that evening, I was crushed by my sin as I saw for the first time the beauty the supremacy, supremacy, the majesty, the glory, the sufficiency 
and indeed the necessity of this mediator, Jesus Christ, who has secured forgiveness of sins for me at an infinite cost. Now, this is one of the central reasons Exodus 32 is important for us today. Following generations, all generations to follow would need to see that we are by nature first commandment breakers. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You can't commit any other sin without committing that first sin. And our only hope in that idolatry is that we have one who stands in the breach for us. Now chapter 32 picks up the narrative that was interrupted after chapter 24, verse 18. Now in chapter 24, verse 18, it says, Moses went up on the mountain. He's already been there where he received the Ten Commandments. Now he's up there again. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now during this time, he received the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. We read about those instructions in chapters 25 to 31 and all the sacred rituals for ordaining Aaron, his brother, as high priest. So glorious things are being revealed on this mountain. Of course, as always, when great things are happening in the kingdom of God, there's warfare. So great things are being revealed, but the stress of having their leader absent, the stress of having to wait on the Lord is revealing some real issues with Israel. And that brings us to the first point that we see in verses 1 to 6, a crisis, or any crisis for that matter, exposes our idolatry. Look with me in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of them, of him. Now think about this. God has gloriously delivered Israel from Egypt by those remarkable plagues. And then the parting of the Red Sea, he has provided for them uh, miraculously with quail and, and manna and water from the rock. Uh, he has given them this beautiful law, glorious law, and he has revealed his glory on the mountain. And yet here we see they are eaten up with unbelief and doubt. You know, all sin, whether it's high-handed sin. Now, what is high-handed sin? It's a sin that you commit that you premeditate. And for us Southern Baptists who love that doctrine, eternal security, we just think this way. Well, I'll just ask God to forgive me. I have eternal security. That's high-handed sin. But whether it's high-handed sin or unintentional sin, like the sin of worry, all sin can be traced back to unbelief. Even believers are like the man in Mark 9, verse 24, who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Incidentally, one of the primary ways we overcome this unbelief is corporate worship. Corporate worship is a means by which our faith is strengthened and by which we overcome this unbelief. 
But believers are not immune to that. This was also true of of Aaron. Notice with me in verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now this is a believer. Idolatry makes you insane. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They are worshiping. Now, at the core of ancient Near Eastern pagan worship was the belief that the images that you constructed gave you immediate access to the God in which you were worshiping. So not only did the, the, the image resemble the deity, it was believed that the presence of the deity was found in that idol. So we see here that Israel, while, while they were in Egypt, had been conformed to the pattern of that pagan culture. Now, why do I say that? Well, uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were looking at the plagues that fell on Egypt, and we saw that Egypt had about 80 to 120 pagan gods. And those plagues came down to take on those false gods. And one of the many gods that Egypt worshiped was the bovine god. In fact, there were several manifestations of the bovine god in Egypt. The cow god. For example, perhaps the most important bovine god was Hathor, who was the mother of Ra, who was Egypt's sun god. So in their idolatry here, Aaron makes the only kind of god he knows to make, a golden calf. R.C. Sproul, in his wonderful book, The, The Holiness of God, says the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. And as shocking and as repulsive as this account might be to us, the act of worshiping the creation rather than the creator, Paul says in Romans 1, 18 to 25, is what is true of all persons, all times, and in all places apart from saving grace. In other words, the idolatry we see here in this passage is true of all humanity. That's where we get the the language of sacred cow from this chapter. 
Your, your sacred cow is what you can't give up, what you want give up, because it gives you unmediated. Now, when I say unmediated, all true blessings are mediated through the Son of God. He is the mediator between God and man. But these sacred cows give you unmediated security, identity, satisfaction, and pleasure without a demand for holiness. The idols demand your life. They do not demand holiness. That's why we're so attracted to them. And so the golden calf episode here is more than about what happened so many thousands of years ago. It's about what happens every day in our lives. That's why Os Guinness rightly said, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. The most discussed problem in the Bible. Now it's crucial here to remember that at this point, they already have the law. God gave them through Moses the Ten Commandments. And after the giving of the law, Israel's response, they sounded really spiritual. In chapter 20, verse, 24, verse 3, everything that the Lord has said, we will, uh, has said, we will do. So they sounded very faithful. They sound very committed. And the crisis of Moses' absence exposes something else. Isn't that a timely word for us? Crises expose what we really believe. Crises expose where our true hopes reside. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. It is so easy to deceive ourselves. And God allows these crises. In fact, that's one of the reasons for God's providence in our lives. There's so many reasons, so many things he accomplishes by his providence. But it exposes what we're truly worshiping. Now think about this. Moses was absent for 40 days and 40 nights. That's not arbitrary. In the Bible, 40 days is a time of testing. This was a test. And testing always reveals what we really believe, who we truly or what we truly hope in. And they were failing the test. And God was not oblivious. And so in the first six verses, we see a crisis exposes our idolatry. In verses 7 to 10, we say that the Lord opposes our idolatry. Look with me in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. Notice the distance. He has distanced himself from these people because of their idolatry. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Idolatry always corrupts. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are haunting words, and yet verses 7 to 8 ooze with grace. For one... It is good that the Lord opposes our idolatry. It is good that he hates our idolatry. 
I was thinking about Psalm 16 as I was thinking about that point this week. In Psalm 16, verse 4, listen to these words. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. So it is good that God opposes and hates our idolatry. It would be like a, a doctor who recognizes the only way a person, can, a person with cancer can live is to give them radiation and chemo. A doctor who was just absolutely neutral to that, oblivious to that, would not be a good doctor. It is good that God opposes our idols. We see grace here. Additionally, if God was truly seeking to destroy Israel here, why send Moses at all? Why send him at all? It's a grace that he is sending Moses. The reality is that God was planning to save them through the intercession of their mediator. Isn't that beautiful? Keep in mind, God declared his holy anger elsewhere in a way that provoked intercessors and mediators. For instance, earlier in Genesis 18, written by Moses himself, God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But what did Abraham do? It provoked him to intercede. And God saved a people out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He comes to Amos in chapter 7 of Amos and says he's going to destroy Israel. What does Amos do? He intercedes and God responds. And oh, oh how we need that intervention. If we only knew how we needed that intervention every day. Even though verse 7 says here that they were delivered from Egypt. They have been delivered by the blood of the Lamb. This was their, this side of their baptism. Their baptism was in the Red Sea, you might say, topologically. They had been delivered, and yet, notice, they have turned aside quickly. It's the language. Does that sound familiar? It should. We struggle with the same temptation. It's seen in our grumbling. It's seen in our complaining. It's seen in our discontentments of the heart. It's seen in our ingratitude. It's seen in our boredom with God. John Piper once said, I am astonished at believers who live as if happiness is found by giving the Lord 2% of their attention. And yet, we're so easily enthralled with entertainment. Whether it's sports entertainment, whether it's Netflix, binge watching, hobbies, pornography in a more sinister way, and substance addictions. And these sins deserve punishment. They do. Which is what the Lord threatens. Notice in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, he calls the people stiff-necked. That is intentional language. In the ancient Near East, this was a derogatory term 
that was used to describe obstinate, stubborn cattle. Whether it be oxen or cows, you could not use them. You could not plow with them. They were too obstinate and stubborn. And here, Israel is worshiping a golden calf. According to Psalm 115, verse 8, we become like that which we worship. And so Israel, metaphorically speaking, had become a bunch of stubborn, obstinate, stiff-necked cows. Now, this is a very dangerous place to be in. I, I, I see it in my own self when I have a sinful attitude towards perhaps someone or a circumstance, and, and I justify it in my heart. I see it most often in counseling. I see it most often in counseling when I see a husband or a wife, generally it's more often the husband, who blames their sick relationship on the other party. They believe their biggest problem is outside of them. They believe that it's their circumstances, it's their, their spouse or other relationships. They believe it's their circumstances. If only I could change my circumstances, if only I could change my location, my relationships. So I'll just get another spouse. Or I'll just change churches. Forgetting the fact that you're taking your stiff-necked heart over to the next church to mess up. I'll just blame my circumstances for my attitude. Stiff-necked. That's what it is. And the Lord has at face value a strange, if not horrifying, sobering response. Look with me in verse 10. Now therefore, let me alone. God says to Moses, let me alone. Give me space that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, what is the Lord doing? He is making it clear that Moses, the mediator, is the only one standing between Israel and judgment. So he says, leave me alone. But in all actuality, he's pushing Moses to intercede. Consider this analogy. A coach tells a player, a star player, if you keep jumping off sides, I'm going to sit you on the bench. So to get that player involved in the process, he threatens the bench. And the player knows that's a good coach, and he will follow through on his threat. And so the player stops jumping off sides. He responds because he knows the coach is serious. That's what's going on here. The Lord is using the real threat of judgment to rouse Moses to intercede. But this was more than a call to intercede. It was a test for Moses. You know, God's always testing even his leaders, growing us, maturing us. Even Jesus learned obedience, right, by the things he suffered. So this is a test for Moses. The Lord promises, if you'll just leave me alone, 
I will destroy all of them and I'll start over with you. I'll make you a great nation, a nation of Mosesites. And it must have been appealing to Moses, and yet he passes the test. And that brings us to the final section of this chapter. We've seen that crisis expose our idolatry. The Lord opposes, but the mediator interposes. The mediator interposes for our idolatry. What does it mean to interpose? To come between. The mediator comes between a holy God and we, the idolater. Notice with me in verse 11. But, and that word but, don't look past that. That is the grace of God right here for us. But Moses implored the Lord is God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses is aware that the nations and the pagans around are observing God's people. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then in verse 13, he says, there's some things you need to remember, Lord. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. He's reminding the Lord of his gospel promises. This teaches us how to pray right, right here. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Those were your promises, God. So he is appealing to God's person, his character, his promises. And the Lord, notice, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So this is a great example of how the Lord responds to prayer. Uh, we here at Lakeview believe in the meticulous sovereignty of God. We believe that is one of the inherent attributes of his lordship, that he is completely sovereign. But we who believe in divine uh, sovereignty sometimes struggle in our faulty thinking with the role of prayer. If God's sovereign, why, why should we pray? But this clearly shows that God is both transcendent, that means he is able, he is distinct from his created order, which means he has all power and he's able to, to answer our prayers, but he's also imminent, he's personal, and he will answer our prayers. This text shows us that he responds to prayer. I mean, think about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of how God used his church to turn the world upside down from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. How did the church do that? The word pray or prayer is found 29 times in those 28 chapters of Acts. God responds, God answers the prayers of his people. 
His name is on the line. The prayers of the righteous availeth much. And we are righteous in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, this prayer is unlike our prayers. This is a -a one-of-a-kind kind of prayer because this is God's mediator for his people who's preparing us for something greater. Later, the psalmist in Psalm 106 said, The Lord said he would destroy them had not Moses, notice, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath. He stood in the breach. And it changes the course of history. It means Israel has a future. It means the nations have a future because the nation's blessing will come through Israel. It means the world would have a Messiah because the Messiah would come through Israel. Indeed, we can see in many ways, this is kind of the micro story of salvation. God inhabits his holy hill. And down there at the bottom of his hill are people like us so dispositioned towards idolatry. Our only hope is a mediator. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets, the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. These are the Ten Commandments. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he was with Moses, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. It's the same verb that was used for God's anger. Moses has the heart of God. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink of it. Later, the Lord Jesus would have us eat of this bread and drink of this cup. It was a way of communing with the true and living God. I believe this is what this is referring to. If you're going to worship this God, you may commune with it. Uh, I believe that's what's happening. He made them drink it. But Moses breaking the tablets is a prophetic act. It was a physical way of communicating you have broken God's law. But he doesn't just leave it there. The next thing he does is he destroys the idols. What does that teach us? It teaches us that the idols in our lives can't be managed or controlled. It's impossible. They have to be destroyed. Destroyed. Notice in verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? It starts with leadership. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. He's an excuse maker. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Because you delayed so long, this is why we 
acted this way. Again, my, our circumstances uh, are the reason we acted this way. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And one of the most insane comments in all of Scripture, out came this calf. And instead of truly repenting here, Moses did what the first priest, Adam, did. He made excuses. He shifts the blame. Of course, Moses was not impressed. God's not impressed. Verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, God help us. To the derision of their enemies, the enemies are always observing God's people, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the only ones who answered the call were the Levites, his own tribe, which means not everyone was engaged in false worship. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now keep in mind, under the Old Covenant, these were physical manifestations of judgment that point to a greater and more awesome and terrifying day of judgment to come. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, this is utterly shocking, but remember, Israel had made a blood covenant with the Lord. And once they had broken their covenant, death was just. Death was right. And sometimes that rubs us the wrong way, but the problem is not with God. The problem is not with the Scripture. The problem is with our puny thoughts about his holiness and his righteousness. When I say, I can't believe in a God who would respond like this, I'm really saying, I want a God who is not beyond my present level of holiness. Yet here we see God's holiness isn't just justice, it's also mercy. Of all the people of Israel, 3,000 died. 3,000 died. Now that's sad, but that was only 0.005% of the population. With that said, this is hard to swallow. But understand, leaving idolaters in the land would threaten the seed of hope. It would threaten the capacity for Messiah to come and the preservation of the truth. It would have threatened all of that. And it goes without saying we're not called to imitate Moses or the Levites' actions here. I think what is exemplary here is to imitate their spirit of obedience with the sword of the Spirit. We should have the same zeal for truth. And, and the Levites' devotion to the Lord here, which is very apparent, in ending the idolatry in this account, 
is confirmation of the appropriateness that this would be the clergy tribe of Israel. The priesthood would come in this line. Notice in verse 29. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now it would seem that the Levites, after having finished their work here, that God himself would have been finished with Israel's sin. But there was still a big elephant in the room. There was still a massive problem. And what is that? God's wrath was not yet appeased. God's wrath, which is good, by the way, God's wrath is the hope of the world. When we look at the nonsense going on in Afghanistan with the, the evil Taliban, it's God's wrath that's our hope. It's God's wrath that is the hope of the believers there in Afghanistan. God's wrath is holy wrath. It's good. And his wrath here was not yet satisfied. How could it be? They had broken blood covenant. All of them, they knew the ramifications of breaking blood covenant. They deserved death. But how could their sins be atoned for? It's the question that's being raised in the text. Well, notice in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Perhaps Moses remembered all the previous animal sacrifices that had been offered to temporarily satisfy God's wrath. Maybe Moses remembered that promise he had written under the inspiration of the Spirit in Genesis 3.15, where it says that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. But in that same promise, it says, the seed of the woman, his his heel would be bruised by the seed of the serpent. Moses clearly recognized that victory would come through a representative man. And yet this representative man would have to suffer. Maybe Moses was contemplating that. Maybe he was thinking he was the one who would be the one who would satisfy God's wrath. But notice in verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This isn't the first time Moses is interceded for these people. We saw it in chapter 14 at the Red Sea. We see it in chapter 15 uh, when they needed water. Uh, We see it in chapter 16 when they needed food. We see it in chapter 17 again when they needed water. And when they fought the Amalekites, God, God has used Moses' intercession. But what does it mean when he pleads that God would blot his name out of the book. What is this book? Well, Paul describes this book in Philippians 4, verse 3, as the book of life. It's the book of life. To refer to eternal salvation for those who believe. In the ancient Near East, it was normal for kings to register their citizens in a book. And when those citizens died, their names would be blotted out of the book. 
the book of life, and I believe that's what this is referring to, is where God registers all the citizens of his kingdom. All the citizens of his kingdom are in that book. And so Moses is saying, I am willing, what remarkable love. I am willing to have my name blotted out of that book to satisfy your wrath for Israel. Paul would say something similarly later in Romans. And yet, God turned him down. Notice as we close here, verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. I I personally believe that angel is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Godhead. Uh, we We established that in Exodus 3. My angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And so chapter 32 ends with a a small-scale warning, a sample of God's wrath, but not the actual full punishment. In fact, commentators don't believe that anyone died in this plague. It was just a reminder of what would come for those who did not repent. So what is the problem here? Why did God not receive the sacrifice of Israel's mediator. They clearly needed one. They needed one who would mediate for them. It's not said here. But the rest of Scripture does tell us Moses could not pay the debt. For one, it was an infinite debt. Only God, who is infinite, can pay an infinite debt. But second, Moses couldn't die for Israel's sins because he was a sinner himself. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world had to be holy and blameless and undefiled. But Moses certainly does point to the one who would come once for all. At Golgotha, Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, cried, Father, forgive them. And that forgiveness was given because he was in fact blotted out as our substitute. Peter would pick up this language in Acts 3 when he says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In other words, instead of our names Instead of our sins, instead of our names being blotted out, our sins are blotted out through the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this, these words from Philip Ryken as we close here to illustrate this. Think of Moses as the extra who stands in for the star during the filming of the movie. While the stagehands are setting the scene and adjusting the lights, The extra stands right where the star will stand when the filming starts. So when the star finally takes the stage, everything will be just right. While all of this is going on, 
onlookers can get some idea what the scene will look like. But they don't know the full story. The star is still waiting somewhere backstage. He won't step in until the last moment. And only then will the scene be played properly. Indeed, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. So let me close with this application point. What do we take from this? First of all, as the last verse of 1 John 5 tells us, keep yourself from idols. Now, what are idols? Well, idolatry takes place at the level of your desires. And you can have an idol because your desires are pointed in the wrong direction. You desire something illicit, something the Word of God does not commend. Or you could have a good desire that has controlling status in your life. Either way, you have an idol. It is impossible for a person to be freed from the idols of the heart before that person hates their idols. So how do we get rid of our love for our idols? It's by greater love. That's how you do it. You foster a greater love, doing all that you can do, availing yourselves to the means of grace, corporate worship, individual worship, having time with your godly brothers and sisters in the Word of God. Uh, Thursday in California, Los Angeles, just outside of Los Angeles, a a middle-aged woman charged a 65-pound wildcat and started punching and beating that 65-pound wildcat. You would ask, why would anyone in their right mind want to go attack a wildcat? It's because that wildcat had her five-year-old son's in his mouth and that cat was pulling her son and had pulled him for 45 yards she wouldn't ordinarily attack a wild cat a greater love took over a greater love took over how do you take on the idols it's by that greater love a love that we see supremely from God through the great mediator the son of God who intercedes for us because he first took our idols on the cross and was judged for us. And that is a word for every believer here. This text is intended to strengthen our faith, love, and joy in this God. But it's also a word for every unbeliever here this morning, and I believe there are some here. But here's the good news. You don't have to stay in your idolatry. All you have to do is confess it Repent of it and flee to the mediator, the Son of God, who came and died on the cross for idolaters like you and me and was raised from the grave. So as Adam comes forward, as our pastors will be standing here at the aisle, we would love to talk to you about that mediator, the one who came. In not one moment of his life as our substitute did he have an idolatrous thought an idolatrous motivation. He loved the Lord his God 
with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. He fulfilled all righteousness for idolaters like us. And then he was crushed for our idolatry. What a glorious Savior. What a glorious mediator we have. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.